Media Production. Hey y'all, welcome back to this episode of the Cold Shower Podcast. As you heard in that sweet new intro, this is a Cold Shower Media Production. Cold Shower Media was first born out of a need for a creative outlet, which led me, Taylor, your host, to creating the Cold Shower Podcast. This was a chance for me to meet and highlight unique individuals, all while continuing my full-time job as a social worker. However, as 2020 began to present the need for adaptation in the lives of many people, of which I was no exception, I was laid off from my day job, and honestly, it was a blessing in disguise. It afforded me the opportunity to start Cold Shower Media. Cold Shower Media is a company that goes beyond exercising my own creativity, but helps others to direct theirs while producing high-quality audio content. So if you're at all interested in producing your own podcast or another form of audio content, we can help you do that. And we can do it in a simple way of refurbishing some maybe existing content that you already have, all the way to getting even more complicated, which is helping you shape a new show or a project from the ground up. Um, So if you're at all interested in that, please go to my website, coldshowermedia.com. Today, I am going to actually be recycling some information that I received yesterday. So our pastor had dedicated a Sunday or two to finally just addressing uh, racism, racism in our society and in our country, but also how the American church has played a role in perpetuating racism, both historically and then um, present day as well. And so it punched me right in the face. Uh, For those who have followed along with me, you know that racial injustices are something that um, I'm very passionate about speaking out against. And even for me, this message hit really hard because there's just some lasting implications from things that have happened throughout history that I just didn't know about. And, And so after hearing those things, a lot of what's still happening today makes sense. And so I actually think I'm going to name this episode just like legacy of racism legacy because the things that did or didn't take place in history are still just having lasting impacts in in the current day that we are in now and so this information that i got like i said is recycled from the sermon that our pastor anthony you may know him he's uh, his name is anthony weber he's appeared on some previous episodes of my podcast and he also co-hosts a podcast along with myself and Beth Milligan called Breaking the Surface. And so if you're interested, we have really cool like philosophical, political discussions. We even discuss entertainment, different things like that. Um, Just trying to bring various viewpoints. So myself as a former social worker and Beth as a journalist and Anthony as a pastor and also an ethics teacher. So we just have some really cool conversations. So if you want to check that out, you can just search Breaking the Surface on your favorite podcast platform. I think there is another show called Breaking the Surface, but ours is the one that says with Beth Anthony and Taylor, and it's an image of a microphone that's like dipping below the surface of the water. And that was actually created by my good friend, Tim Holland. So Timmy, if you're listening, we appreciate that. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to just read through some of the notes that he has. And I actually shared these on Facebook And it was just something that I was just so passionate about people reading. However, I know that not everybody likes to read things that people share on social media. So I was like, maybe I can repurpose it and just do it in a video format, but also release it 
on my podcast. So if you're watching the video, this is the same thing that's going to be out on my podcast platform. You don't have to do both. Uh, if you're listening to it and you'd rather watch the video, it'll be on my personal Facebook page. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from the list of really just the, the racial injustices that have taken place throughout our history. And it's going to go in order of date. So from um, far past to getting more recent. And I may have to stop and take some sips of my coffee between because I get a dry throat. But we'll go ahead and get started. <clears throat> so the Indian Wars began in 1609. They won't end until 1924 by which time the Native American population had dropped by 95%. And I also want to say that this list is a short list of what actually took place. I can't even uh, probably measure how short this list is to the things that actually took place, but I do think it gives a good overview of some of the major things that have happened. So anyway, I won't stop after each one. Slavery starts in the New World as early as 1619, when a Dutch ship that had stolen 20 or so Africans from a Portuguese slave trading ship called St. John the Baptist, and that ship landed in the New World. In 1694, Massachusetts offered the first bounties for the heads and scalps of American Indian children. In 1695, it specified 25 pounds for women or children under the age of 14 years that shall be killed. Okay. Various colonial governments sought to limit property ownership among chattel or slaves. For example, a 1692 Virginia law provided that all horses, cattle, and hogs marked of any Negro or other slave or kept by any slave would be given to the white poor. This is the beginning of the crushing of generational wealth. This is way back in the late 1600s. Some Christians were leading abolitionists. The same Bible that racists misused to support slavery and segregation is the one abolitionists and civil rights activists rightly used to animate their resistance. Whenever there has been racial injustice, there have been Christians who fought against it in the name of Jesus Christ. Kudos to you guys. Yet, far too many professing Christians were the opposite. Jonathan Edwards owned household slaves. George Whitefield bought a South Carolina plantation and became a slave owner before leading a push to get slavery legalized in Georgia in 1751. As you might imagine, Christians and preachers owning slaves was a lot for slaves themselves to process. How can that be a godly thing, uh, is what the slaves were asking themselves. The Baptist General Committee issued statements in 1785 and 1790 opposing slavery. After some pushback, they decided it was a civil issue, not a church one, and churches could do whatever they wanted. There were 700,000 slaves in this land in 1790, 3.9 million in 1860, and about 25% of Southern households owned slaves, and that was as high as 49% in Mississippi. The 1790 Naturalization Act permitted only free white persons to become naturalized citizens, so only free white people could vote, serve on juries, hold office, and in many cases own property. Dating back to the 1800s, Native American kids were put in boarding schools, of which a third were run by Christian missionaries. These were in order to kill the Indian and save the man, as Captain Richard Pratt put it in an 1892 speech at George Mason University. These children were isolated from their families and trained into low-paying vocations. 
The Trail of Tears moved 60,000 Native Americans between 1830 and 1850 from their homes in what was known as the Indian Removal. Thousands died before reaching their destinations or shortly after from disease. This is only the most notorious of many similar events, like I said earlier. When the Supreme Court ruled against Dred Scott in 1857, a slave who had sued for his freedom, Judge Roger Taney wrote that black people were of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race. They had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. In 1846, the Episcopalian Church ruled no colored congregation will be admitted into union with this convention, so as to entitle them to representation. They are socially degraded and are not regarded as proper associates for the class of person who attend our convention. 1861 to 65 was the Civil War. On January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln, who hated slavery, issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which freed enslaved people in the Confederate States. The 13th Amendment officially ends slavery in 1865. In the South, the federal government never followed through on Sherman's Civil War plan to divide up plantations and give each freed slave 40 acres and a mule. The only compensation for slavery was $300 per slave, which is $5,000 in today's money. And that money was not given to the slaves, but to slaveholders. Laws kicked in right away in the South that led to indentured servitude through prison labor. In South Carolina, a law prohibiting black people from holding any occupation other than farmer or servant unless they paid an annual tax of $10 to $100. Then, when they couldn't find or afford work, they were arrested for vagrancy or not having a job. It was hard to win a case in court because the judges and police were often former Confederate soldiers. Good luck with that one. The 1862 Homestead Act gave away 270 million acres. It was available to any U.S. citizen who had never fought against the U.S. government. Guess who couldn't legally be a citizen because they weren't white and it was not yet 1868, so six years too early. Carlisle Indian School in 1879 and other boarding schools started with the aim to civilize and Americanize the Indian. Survivors have described a culture of pervasive physical and sexual abuse. Medical attention was scarce. In the early years, more died than actually graduated from those schools. Nearly 200 Native children are buried at the entrance of the Carlisle Barracks. <clears throat> By the time the 1880s rolled around, the legal system entrapped thousands of black men, often on trumped-up charges and without any due process protections, and earned money for sheriffs and state treasuries by selling their labor. It was worse than slavery. Every southern state leased convicts. 90% of all leased convicts were black. 1868, the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to black people. The government specifically interpreted the law so it didn't apply to Native Americans, who would not win the right to citizenship until 1924. They were here first, people. When Reconstruction collapsed with the withdrawal of federal troops in 1877, Voting rights for black men in former Confederate states were restricted or taken away by local laws, poll taxes, literacy tests, intimidation, and fraud. The Grandfather Clause restricted voting rights to men who were allowed to vote or whose male ancestors were allowed to vote before 1867, which was, of course, not black men. 
General Ulysses S. Grant in the late 1800s. This is a quote. Settlers and emigrants must be protected, even if the extermination of every Indian tribe is necessary. The following year, General Philip Sheridan reportedly proclaimed, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. After the 1890 Wounded Knee Massacre, 300 Lakota men, women, and children killed, author Frank Baum, you know him as the writer of The Wizard of Oz, wrote two editorials about Native Americans. After the killing of Sitting Bull, he wrote, With his fall, the nobility of the Redskins is extinguished, and what few are left are a pack of whining curs who lick the hand that smites them. The whites, by the law of conquest, by a justice of civilization, are masters of the American continent, and the best safety of the frontier settlements will be secured by the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. Better that they die than live the miserable wretches that they are. Uh, thanks for the Wizard of Oz, I guess. President Theodore Roosevelt in the early 1900s said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indians are the dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. Nathan Bedford Forrest, who coordinated the butchering of black and white Union soldiers at Fort Pillow, went on to become the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Many Klan members actively participated in their churches, and more than a few preached on Sunday. There were 4,000... 84 racially motivated lynchings in 12 southern states between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and the 1950s. Now we're continuing to get a little bit more recent. 1921 brought the Tulsa Massacre, in which a highly prosperous black community known as Black Wall Street was attacked and pounded into rubble after a black boy accidentally jostled a white woman in an elevator. Hundreds were killed. More than 1,400 homes, businesses, schools, and churches were burned. Nearly 10,000 people, 10,000 people were left homeless. The destruction of legacy wealth is almost incalculable. Legacy. The newspaper headline the next day read, Two White People Killed in Race Riot. The Tulsa Race Massacre was barely mentioned in history books until the late 1990s. Two years before that was the Red Summer. A summer of violent race riots sparked by things like a black boy on a raft floating into the white person's section of Lake Michigan and Chicago. The unofficial last hired, first fired policy pushed the black unemployment rate following the Great Depression to 50 to 70 percent in 1932, a rate double and triple that of whites. The KKK experienced a resurgence in the 1910s through the 1930s. With three to five million members in the North alone, it's estimated that 40,000 ministers, ministers were members of the Klan. And these people were sermonizing regularly, explicitly, urging people to join the Klan. The Social Security Act of 1935 provided a safety net for millions of workers, but it excluded two occupations, agricultural workers and domestic servants, who were predominantly African-American, Mexican, and Asian. That was rectified in 1954. The 1935 Wagner Act, which is collective bargaining for unions, helped millions of workers join the middle class, permitting unions to exclude non-whites. Many unions remained nearly all white well into the 1970s. In 1972, every single one of the 3,000 members of the Los Angeles Steamfitters Local 250 was still white. In 1934, the Federal Housing Administration introduced our modern mortgage lending system, 
which included redlining policies in over 200 cities. Redlining was a way of helping the government decide which neighborhoods would get home loans and which would not. The redlining overwhelmingly highlighted communities with black residents. Between 1934 and 1962, the federal government backed $120 billion of home loans. Less than 2% of that went to blacks, who constituted 12% of the population. When courts began overturning redlining and race-based zoning laws, the government began building highways right on those former boundary lines, and that was at the request of community members. At times, the highways were routed purposely through minority communities. The government took property by eminent domain, and black neighborhoods lost homes, businesses, churches, and schools. Constructing interstate highways through majority black neighborhoods eventually reduced the populations to the poorest proportion of people financially unable to leave their destroyed community. That's known as urban decay. The Negro Motorist Green Book was published from 1936 to 1966. That was two years after my dad was born. To help black motorists travel without getting in trouble. That was the point of this Negro Motorist Green Book. John Lewis, who you know, recalled how his family prepared for a trip in 1951. Here's his quote. There would be no restaurant for us to stop at until we were well out of the South. So we took our restaurant right in the car with us. Stopping for gas and to use the bathroom took careful planning. Uncle Otis knew which places along the way offered colored bathrooms and which were better just to pass on by. Our map was marked and our route was planned that way by the distance between service stations where it would be safe for us to stop. Many hotels, motels, and boarding houses refused to serve black customers by the end of the 1960s. There were an estimated 10,000 sundown towns across the United States, named because of the signs that read, N-words, don't let the sun go down on you in this town. The black hospital movement took place from 1865 to the 1960s. Black patients were usually not admitted to white hospitals or hired as staff, especially in the South, and for a long time could only get an education at a select few colleges in the North and Midwest. You can imagine the toll this took on the health of the black population. 1952 was the first year since 1882 that there were no recorded lynchings in the United States. Uh, Yes, that's 1952. In 1954, a regional meeting of clergymen in the Presbyterian Church of the United States featured a speaker discussing a Christian view of segregation. At that conference, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in West Dallas gave a sermon entitled, God, the Original Segregationist. You think that harms our witness? I do. By 1956, hospital integration was common in the North. 83% of hospitals providing integrated services. In the South, only 6% of hospitals offered unrestricted services to black patients. 31% did not admit black patients under any conditions. The United States passed civil rights bills in 1957, 1964, and 1965. The 24th Amendment in 1964 finally assured voting rights for black citizens. Over 50 bombings from 1947 to 1965 in a slowly integrating white neighborhood earned Birmingham the moniker Bombingham. In September of 63, four young black girls were killed when KKK members detonated a bomb in 16th Street Baptist Church. 
The National Black Evangelical Association branched off from the National Evangelical Association in 1963, largely motivated by frustration over white evangelicals refusing to get involved on civil rights issues. Fair Housing Act of 1968 finally put an end to legally sanctioned redlining policies. The Indian school movement lasted until 1978. From 1981 to 1997, the United States Department of Agriculture denied loans to tens of thousands of black farmers that were provided to white farmers in similar circumstances. Just after emancipation, African Americans only owned 0.5% of the total worth of the United States. But by 1990, this is 125 years after the abolition of slavery, black Americans still possessed only a meager 1%. That's half a percent increase in 125 years. Mississippi ratified the 13th Amendment in 1995. Educational inequalities continue. Equally sized majority non-white districts get $23 billion less in funding every year than majorly white districts. Why? Because schools are funded by property taxes. And the Supreme Court in 1974 ruled that a school district line can be drawn anywhere for almost any reason. Many lines were drawn along the lines that started urban decay and defined urban renewal. This funding discrepancy has had huge educational and economic implications. Healthcare inequalities continue. The black population has been hit the hardest of all ethnic demographics by COVID-19, due in part to the impact of racial discrimination that has a legacy to this day. Things like housing, education, vocation, distrust of healthcare, bringing to mind the Tuskegee experiments. Hate crimes have risen against Asian Americans since the coronavirus started. This is largely attributed to how the constant drumbeat of the China virus has focused anger and frustration on the Chinese as a group. I've spoken heavily about the misuse of the China virus and how harmful that is. Google hate crimes Asian. Nearly half of Chinese residents have reported incidents tied to their ethnic background since the pandemic began. This is in line with the history of discrimination against Asians in our country. In 2021, students at a local high school near my town of Traverse City, in my town of Traverse City, started a slave market online and bought and sold minority students while making demeaning comments about them. People are now reconsidering where they can send their daughter to school because they don't know if she'd be safe. A Texas high school made the news this year for that same exact reason. Last month, someone in Traverse City stood up at the local school board meeting, streamed for the community to see, and felt comfortable using the N-word multiple times. In the screen, a black man sitting behind her is visibly undone and leaves, has to leave the room. I actually know this man. So, just begin to wrap up. I'm going to end with some quotes that Anthony had had, and it says, this is what many of our black and brown brothers and sisters are weeping about. This is what breaks the heart of God as he sees the impact of racist sin. If we want to have the eyes of God, we must see what God sees. If we want to have the heart of God, we must feel what he feels. What breaks his heart must break ours. When we spend more time saying, but I don't like how the world is responding to racism, rather than saying, Here's how we as Christians should be responding to racism. We're in trouble. 
It looks like the world is more serious about addressing injustice and sin than we are. It might even seem like a hostile environment if there is a barrage of complaints about talking about the reality and ongoing legacy of racism. We've all heard the argument that minorities are better off in the U.S. today than in any other time in our history, so we should all just relax. That may be true by comparison to the times of slavery and lynching and bombing and massacres, but that's a low, low standard. People can be at a better place than ever and still be in a deeply unjust place. But I love how he starts to wrap that up. And it's a, I think, a particular challenge to Christians and our response as Christians to the things that the world is telling us we should be concerned about and spending more time critiquing how the world is responding to these things than actually asking ourselves, how can we get involved is just, it's ignorance. And I was really challenged with this information because I'm, I'm thinking back to times like the civil rights movements. And I have to ask how many people never uttered a word of support during any of the civil rights era yet now can sit in the comfort of knowing that they were alive when those changes took place. Like, yes, I was alive during the civil rights era and now they're somehow taking credit for something that maybe they themselves never spoke up about. And one of my favorite things to revert to when we talk about difficult issues and it's not just limited to racial injustice, but is to say when there's something bad that's happening, and my words are not perfect to address it. I'm still going to say something because imperfect words are still better than no words at all. And I just hope that, that you made it through, that you took those dates and, and, and understood how the legacy of racism is still impacting groups of people today in a way that I myself personally can't imagine. And as, as I was going through that list, I was thinking, this is crazy how these events, had they happened or not happened, I think I would be in very much the same situation. I would have the same life that I have, and it's a good life. And there's a lot of people out there that can't say the same thing. So particularly for Christians, please understand that there is room to talk about these things and that we have to talk about them because if all we do is critique then we're distancing ourselves from actual involvement and it's ignorance, it's ignorance. And we do not want to be someone in 10 or 20 years that is going to be taking credit for the good things that happened in the year 2021 when you didn't actually do anything. All right. I hope that this impacted you in some way and made you consider things a little bit differently. I love you guys. As always, I appreciate you listening. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.